Soundgarden are unquestionably one of Seattle's big four of grunge rock, and supposedly acknowledged as one of the great American bands of the 1990s. But is it possible that Soundgarden may actually be underrated? They don't have the iconic Hall of Fame credentials of Nirvana or Pearl Jam, nor do they carry the enduring mystique of Alice in Chains. They don't seem to be remembered as fondly by the younger generations of rock music fans, i.e. Millennials and Gen Z folks. Yet, they are the band that not only predated those other three, but they arguably created what became known as the Seattle Sound. Over the course of their career, their discography also shows that they were quite possibly the most innovative and inventive of all the Seattle bands. And if you have an educated ear, you can find a distinct Soundgarden influence in several well-known 21st century bands even up to today. This band deserves its due. Welcome to Soundgarden, a legacy. Welcome, everyone, to the 30th edition of their Curmudgeon Rock Report, where we don't do hot takes, we do honest takes, and rock and roll lives on in full color, at full force, and with all of its glorious majesty. And now you can join our new invite-only Facebook group, which we call the Curmudgeon Rock Report's Curmudgeonly Community. Join us there and share thoughts, musings, and random excitement with fellow travelers along the curmudgeonly path to rock and roll goodness. Chris O'Connor here, Arturo Andrade there. Ready to talk about Soundgarden, dude? Yeah, absolutely. I've been really looking forward to this because uh, this is a band that, I mean, we're doing a legacy episode on them. But like I said in the in, in the in, in the the intro, this in some odd way, even though they were like a huge band, especially in our youth, they yeah. really have been kind of underrated in some ways. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, they, you know, they certainly have. I mean, they. Uh, they, they were well. We'll talk about it here in a bit. But they were they were contemporaries with bands that were even bigger than them. But uh, they were uh, weirder and cooler and uh, definitely more complicated uh, than than those other bands. But so we'll get we'll get into that in a second. Uh, but first, uh, let us uh, do our usual uh, thing and uh, join everybody on the other side of the space time continuum. Hello uh, from the parallel universe. Uh, here is where we, uh, Arturo and I, will cover the artists and give love uh, to albums that, in another world, in another time, and in uh, another context, would be huge and would be uh, the superstars of the universe, uh, but uh, not in this world. However, in the parallel universe, they are. This week, uh, we have the rare distinction of being so in love with one album and so not in love with another, like really, really, really not in love with another, that Arturo and I are going to form the mega powers, uh, the tag team uh, of all uh, music podcasters. And we're going to uh, we're going to collaborate on uh, both of these records. And so to start with, uh, let's talk about Big Thief's Dragon New Warm Mountain, I Believe in You. Arturo, what do you, what's your uh, thought on this wonderful record? Yeah, for those out there who don't know, um, Big Thief, uh, they're an indie rock quartet from Brooklyn, New York, and they're starting to get wider recognition now, and they are 
quote unquote blowing up big as any band can in an era where rock music has been reduced to a niche genre. <laughs> but in yep. our curmudgeonly parallel universe where rock music is still a pop cultural force, Big Thief would be truly blowing up big and would be all over modern rock radio, especially on the heels of their captivatingly brilliant new album that you just mentioned, Dragon New Warm Mountain, I Believe in You. Now, let me backtrack a little bit. Saying they're from New York is saying so only nominally since they're based in New York City. But in fact, the individual members of the band hail from different parts of the country. Uh, For example, guitarist Buck Meek is from Texas. Uh, Lead singer, guitarist, main songwriter Adrienne Lenker was born in Indiana the great rock and roll state that gave us John Mellencamp, Axl Rose, and Shannon Hoon, <laughs> there but, you go. Uh, but grew up in Minnesota. Another great rock and roll state that gave us Bob Dylan, The Replacements, Husker Du, and, of course, Prince. Um, they all met while attending the Berklee College of Music in Boston, and then they moved to New York as a band after graduating all together. And- also... Yes, uh, and as it turns out, they made this album while they were quarantined in Vermont. Yep, I was. So gonna, go figure. They, yeah, they, they, they're, they're, there's a lot of geographic uh, shit going on there. Yeah. Now, calling them indie rock nowadays is also a stretch. Uh, their first two albums, 2016's Masterpiece and 2017's Capacity, were certainly indie rock albums that owed quite a bit to the 1990s alternative and indie rock subgenres. However, 2019's excellent UFOF saw the band delve deeper into the folk music that they hinted at in their earlier records. And while that album was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Alternative Music Album, their second album of that year, Two Hands, produced the closest thing that band has come to a hit and their signature song, Not. Uh, sounding basically like the best song Neil Young and Crazy Horse never recorded. (laughs) It was also nominated for a Grammy for Best Rock Song. Uh, In a curmudgeonly parallel universe, that would have been the number one song on rock radio for that year. Now, this all brings us uh, to the brand new double album with the appropriately elongated title Dragon New... I'm going to say it again. Dragon New Warm Mountain, I Believe in You. Um, like you said, uh, it was written in Vermont, but the recording of, of the album uh, was during the pandemic lockdown year of 2020, as many of you know. And if the album has a sprawling, multifaceted sound that can be jarring in its stylistic shifts, that's because it was intended that way. Uh, the album's producer and the band's drummer, uh, James Chenia came up with the idea of recording the record in studios in four different locations, upstate New York, Topanga Canyon in Southern California, the Sonoran Desert in Arizona, and the Colorado Mountains, with different sonic and musical agendas for each location. Uh, The results are very hard to argue with. Um, What some people would call lacking in consistency, I call spellbindingly eclectic. Yes, they expand further into the haunting folk sound of UFOF by not being afraid to tackle traditional country music head-on on tracks like Spud Infinity and Dried Roses. They also aren't afraid to spike their music with electronic-tinged, dark, druggy alternative rock on songs like Flower of Blood and Blurred View. 
No Reason shows the band's unabashed love for 1970s sensitive, confessional, singer-songwriter folk pop a la Cat Stevens. Gee, I wonder if this was the one of the tracks they recorded in Topanga Canyon. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I suspect so. <laughs> yeah. Um, Red Moon is a violin-charged country rock hoedown that recalls very early Every Picture Tells a Story era Rod Stewart before he became a joke in the mid-1970s. Um, Time Escaping is a polyrhythmic rock and roll freakout with spaced out lyrics that make you think this band weren't exactly drug free when they were hanging out in the mountains and the canyons and the deserts. Yeah, per, <laughs> per, pretty much. That's the closest thing that they, uh, the closest they've ever come to the Grateful Dead. Yeah, uh, no shit. That That's very deadish. Yeah. Um, love, love, love is just another mid-tempo sludge rocker that uh, reminds you that Uncle Neil is never too far away from this band's mind. Nope. <laughs> um, after listening to this densest fuck album, you come away with the notion that the star of this album is undoubtedly Adrienne Lenker and the rich depth and breadth of her songwriting. Um, her lyrics can be intimate and confessional. They can be emotionally expressive and romantic. They can be dark without being too dreary. They can be surreal with imagery that ranges from swirling psychedelic to subtly disturbing. And they can be sweet and joyous while never being corny. Um, it's very early in the year, but this is by far the top contender for album of the year, in my opinion. And I'm highly skeptical that something will come out this year that will top it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, dude. Uh, I don't see uh, much of anything being better than this. I have, I have a few things to say uh, about this record. Uh, so it's a good sign for a double album uh, when my favorite song on it is the last song, uh, Blue Lightning, which is uh, sweet, romantic, charming and funny. Uh, and it has the distinction of being reminiscent of both the Flying Burrito Brothers and the most beguiling of R.E.M.'s mid-1980s output. Uh, there's that. And then here's a fascinating thing about this band and about this album. Uh, here's an instance where you can't really confuse the idiom with the influences. I hear lots of room for Jay Maskus, Doug Marsh, Dave Navarro, Isaac Brock, Carrie Brownstein like solos and those kinds of there, there's some sig there's some time signature weirdness going on there. There's a lot of alt rock uh, sort of uh, seminal art rock influence on there. Like even some of the like s there's some silly stuff in there that even remind is very reminiscent of the Meat Puppets in their Meat Puppets too. Uh, up oh on yeah, the up on the Sun phase. Right. Uh, like you said, there's some of that Emmy Lewis uh, Emmy Lou Harris. Uh, late 1970s more pop country uh in there and then you know obviously there's the james taylor and more of the topanga uh stuff on there and uh the the whole idea of this being a double album is funny to me because i tried to you see it everywhere on the streaming sites and on the uh where they you know, like if if you go to Bandcamp or anywhere else on that they just list the 20 songs yeah. And even on B Big Thief's website, they say, you know, here's here's the album and they give the list where you basically I guess you can stream it and then they invite you to buy the vinyl. Unless you have the vinyl record in your hands, you have no idea how the double album breaks up. Yeah. So it's a double. Although, although, although you have an idea. I think I, I think it's 1010. Yeah. 10. yeah well, 10 -10. well, yeah, it's 1010 and, and probably more accurately 5555. 
right. it, it kind of plays that it kind of does play that way. So that's, that's sort of it. And, uh, I guess to the, the the idea of a double album, one of the criticisms I've seen is like you've said it, that yeah, is it eclectic? Yes, but it's it's a range. I mean, I, I see a consistent hold. There's a low end. There's a high end. Uh, there's a soft end. There's a, a loud end. Uh, there's uh, there's the rockers and that kind of uh, sort of alt rock uh, reverence, and then there's also the straightforward country, but. I think there's a consistency of vision. Uh, I think that there's uh, some pretty uh, unified themes and all of that. And so really then it becomes a good litmus test for uh, 2022. Just how lazy and inattentive are you now? Uh, yeah. Do you have it in you to actually get through a, an, an hour and 20 minutes of an album that is designed for beginning to end uh, consumption? Yeah, I, I think this is this is their. I mean, this is proof that double albums are usually a band's or an artist's masterpiece. They almost yep. always are. The Beatles' yeah. White Album, Dylan's Blonde on Blonde, was a double album back in '66. The Clash, London Calling, both the Who, Quadrophenia, and Tommy, Led Zeppelin, Physical Graffiti, the uh, list goes. Even Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, you know, yeah. it just goes on and on. Whenever a band or an artist does a double album, 80% of the time, it's one of their best, if not their best work. Yeah, yeah, that 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 definitely is a, a that is a truism that, uh, you know, uh, the longer, the better, the more eclectic. And it's it's more of an experience than it is a listen. You know, sure. And then the double album, I think then, which is probably the the purpose. Uh, now, uh, speaking of experiences and uh there can be good experiences and then there can be fucking awful experiences. And, uh, that's where we come to black country, new road and, uh, their album. If that's what you want to call it, ants from up there, uh, Arturo, uh, you take the first shit. Well, I was hoping you would, because I know you have a lot of interesting things to say about this record. Um, when, when I heard it, I, I gave it three listens and it's just like, Every worst tendency of soft machine mixed with the worst kind of like pre-rock and roll orchestral pop music barf. It's just yeah. really, really, and but just replace the orchestras with saxophones. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ba- ba- basically, when you proudly advertise your band as a as post rock chamber music, uh, it it just goes downhill from there. Uh, I will share my line. Pretentious so, dickheads is what you call that. Yes, pretentious dickheads. Here is the formula that describes Black Country New Road. It's the worst of magnetic fields plus the worst of Bauhaus plus the worst of Jim Steinman, God rest his soul, plus the worst of Broadway plus the worst of Bright Eyes plus the worst of Arcade Fire like, and just keep going. If it's bad, it's in there. Seriously, what the fuck is this shit? The number one rule of pretentiousness in rock, uh, be good enough to pull it off. If you ain't talking heads, don't do it. Uh, otherwise, you'll just disgrace yourself, which uh, this band, I think, does. However, you wouldn't know it by the fawning praise of the British intelligentsia and the rock critics, uh, which we are going to have a lot of fun with. Uh, let's have some fun, dude. Uh, so there's a lot of these fawning over-the-top blowjob reviews that came out of the British press when this album was released uh, a month ago. Uh, Let's get into the highlights. Uh, New New Musical Express 
which used to be pretty good and is now just, you know, like whatever. Uh, yeah. What did what did NME have to say about this record? Oh, God, NME. The NME is a joke now. But anyway, um, they proclaiming, they proclaimed their band, they pivot towards more familiar, accessible sounds and embrace traditional song structures, bullshit, without sacrificing an ounce of their musical wizardry or inventiveness. And they called it, quote, truly remarkable and a future cult classic. If it's going to be a future cult classic, it's going to be really, really, really fucking cult. This yeah. album, this album won't be remembered like mo- no more than two years from now. Yeah, um, I was going to say if, if if it's a cult classic, it's not a cult I want to be uh, be a member of. I, I, uh, I know the Independent. Oh, of course, the another British. It's, it's, only the British can like crap like this. Uh, and a five star review declared it quote. The sheer grace and ambition of this album will prove tough for 2022 to top, citing, quote, the grunge rock crescendos. What the fuck? The grunge rock crescendos <laughs> accompanying images of burning starships on goodwill hunting and gargantuan arias on the 12-minute basketball shoes. As, and they call that a track highlight. Basketball Shoes is the last track on the album. It's a 12-minute epic of just epic, unlistenable slop. Uh, yeah. It's just basically Sam Richards, the writer from Uncut, had the most ridiculous comparison of this song, the last track on the album. Yes. He, com- he, he compared it to Marquee Moon by television. Yes. And can I, and can it, I, can I read this whole oh, yeah, thing? Yeah. Re- yeah. Read that. Yeah. I, I need to recite, you know, it's not, it's not enough to just, uh, uh, refer to it. Uh, you, you have to listen, uh, you have to consume this whole thing. So the last two paragraphs of uncuts, uh, review of this piece of shit, uh, where they're talking about basketball shoes, which, by the way, is basically an, uh, a uh, stalkerish ode uh, to the British uh, singer and excellently good-looking Charlie XCX, uh, which makes this very creepy. Uh, Charlie is mentioned by name in the lyrics. But anyway, here we go. Finally, it's time for the colossal basketball shoes. Black Country New Road's very own Marquee Moon, pouring everything they've learned thus far into a gut-wrenching epic of Dostoevskian proportions. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, Lewis Evans's opening saxophone line is a simple one, play, but played with such devastating poise that it prizes your defenses wide open. And that's before Wood enters the scene like a feverish Wood uh, Leonard Cohen. We're talking about, I think his name is Isaac Wood. Yeah. Fragments of childhood memories, past relationships and references from previous songs all mixed up now as he struggles to put a brave face on what appears to not just be a broken heart, but an engulfing existential crisis. And then uh, later he uh, uh, he he ends this whole section. I'll just skip some of the bullshit here and just get to the last sentence. It's relentlessly emotional pummeling is quite an experience. A roller coaster ride for the soul that is likely to leave you feeling distinctly and permanently rearranged. Oh, that is I'm some per- truly terrible writing. The writing no, is awful. No shit. Uh, I've thought about doing that, uh, uh, doing an impression of Ram Das, but uh, <laughs> that probably would have gotten folks to turn us off. Folks, please don't turn us off. Uh, that that's just like. Uh, that that is just astonishingly just awful. Uh, yeah, uh, Dostoevskian. 
uh, okay, yeah, sure. It, uh, it, it gives me like really bad, uh, it gives me like really bad, weird nightmares and makes me want to kill people. Yep. It sure does. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, wanting to kill people and having bad nightmares, um, Isaac Wood, the lead singer slash guitarist slash uh, main creative force in the band, left the band shortly before the album was released, and he cited mental health reasons. I think the mental health reasons came from the fact that he actually listened to this album after they finally recorded it, <laughs> and he realized, oh my God, did I make this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah. He scared himself into post-traumatic uh, uh, stress uh, from the making of this record. Not to make light of PTSD, folks, but yeah. I mean, this is like the musical equivalent of it. So, gosh, uh, I don't get it. Poor, poor uh, Gen Z British music fans for their de- deficiencies of taste. And uh, man, these these uh, British ma- uh, rags that are just enabling uh, this uh, deterioration of taste—it's just astonishing to me. That's so, a good point. Yeah, deterioration of taste—that is what Gen Z British music critics basically are. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, we encourage everyone to take one listen to this thing, so that your jaws can drop as uh, far open as ours did. Uh, we can't give it justice. It is the most terrible album I've heard in a long time. So uh, with that said, uh, we now leave the truly parallel universe. Uh, we have parallelly uh, loved a band and shit on a band. And now we come back to this universe. Uh, let's get into uh, setting up uh, our uh, Soundgarden legacy uh, uh episode here. Uh, this, uh, is really special, uh, for me. And I know for you as, uh, uh, children of this age where, uh, we came into our rock and roll sensibilities, uh, in our late teens. And this band was part of what got us over the top. Yeah. And we sure need Soundgarden to get over the stench of black country, new road, uh, (laughs) of, (laughs) Of the iconic bands that constitute Seattle's big four of grunge, like I said earlier, Soundgarden may possibly be the most underrated of them all. Uh, Nirvana and Pearl Jam sold way more records and have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame status. Alice in Chains created the sound and the vocal style that would be imitated by countless bands on rock radio for almost 20 years. But it was Soundgarden who predated the other three bands by several years, who arguably had the most original and creative sound. In fact, in mid 1980s Seattle, it was the trio of them, Green River, and the Melvins, who essentially created the, the grimy punk metal stew that would eventually be called grunge. Soundgarden helped define a sound that defined a city that would eventually define an entire decade. Uh, They would go on to release classic visionary albums that redefine hard rock by absorbing the influences of the past. Obviously, Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath on the top. Not so obviously, Beatles and Joy Division on the bottom. And producing music that was thrillingly innovative and disarmingly profound. Uh, In this third installment of our Legacy series, folks, we will dive deep into Soundgarden's discography and make the case as to why this was such a special band, why they're worthy of the timeless praise otherwise heaped upon some of their Seattle contemporaries, and why they were underratedly influential, particularly on a list of bands slash artists 
that we will provide later in this episode who are very much inspired by Soundgarden. So everybody, sit back, turn down the lights, turn yourself on to some of that crypto-chronic weed that makes grunge rock so groovy to listen to and enjoy Soundgarden, a legacy. Your resonant curmudgeons recently switched our hosting platform to Podbean, and what a move it's proving to be. For the equivalent of nine bucks a month, we get quality, reliable hosting that allows us to distribute the curmudgeon rock report wide and far to all the places where you find all of the other podcasts. We also get to customize a pretty good website. Visit us at curmudgeonrock.podbean.com. And we also receive some excellent statistics that tell us when and how you listen to this here creation. Most importantly, Podbean is its own community of podcasters and opens us and you to some pretty incredible music podcasts besides this incredible one. We urge you to especially check out History in Five Songs with prolific writer Martin Popoff and Song Exploder which expertly guides listeners through the making of a great pop song. Podbean, it ain't bad. Let's address now some of the legacy elements of this legacy episode on Soundgarden up front here. Uh, There probably isn't another notable band uh, during the college rock slash grunge slash punk revival period between roughly 1987 and 1996, that improved as much as Soundgarden did over the course of those years. The same band that in 1988 was goofily covering the Ohio players was by 1991 cranking out art metal masterworks like Jesus Christ Pose, and by 1996 was plastering modern rock radio with lovely yet scorching hits like Burden in My Hand. Now, Soundgarden was uh, inventive, fun, sexy, and balls-out rocking from the very beginning, but what started out as underground, cool, and arguably wankery evolved into something undeniably sophisticated, complex, unpredictable, incredible, and legendary. For a two-year period in the mid-90s, this band, this band reigned as the biggest rock band in the world. Mostly, though, the story of Soundgarden is one in which Chris Cornell became a hell of a frontman and then became a hell of a songwriter and then became a hell of a creature of tragic rock and roll mythology. His band, in essence, was a monolithic math rock band fronted by a reincarnated Jim Morrison. And to think, Chris Cornell, sex bomb superstar, started off as this band's drummer. It's a thrill to talk about this band and revisit this music. Arturo, tell us more about Soundgarden's origin story. Well, let's see. Let's say we're going to cover the years of 1984 to 86. Uh, The beginning of Soundgarden's career almost reads like a beginning of the Seattle scene itself, or at least the beginning of Sub Pop Records. Um, Oddly enough, it starts in Chicago. Uh, in the early 1980s, Kim Thayil, and that is how his pr- name is pronounced, Thayil, uh, Hiro Yamamoto, and uh, Bruce Pavitt moved together from the Chicago suburb of Park Forest to Seattle. Thayil would enroll at the University of Washington. 
Pavitt would eventually attend Evergreen State College in Olympia and start the fanzine Subterranean Pop, which would morph into Sub Pop Records. And Yamamoto would join a rather mediocre covers band called The Shemps on bass. That yep. band featured a young drummer and aspiring singer named Chris Cornell. Uh, Yamamoto would leave the band with Thail replacing him on bass, but the fledgling band eventually broke up. Nevertheless, Yamamoto and Cornell kept in touch and soon started jamming together. Thail would eventually join the band as guitarist, and this trio dubbed themselves Soundgarden in 1984. They named themselves after a wind-channeling pipe sculpture called A Sound Garden, space between sound and garden, that can still be found on the campus of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uh, in Seattle. There are no official recordings of this early incarnation of the band, but people who witnessed their live shows attest that they sounded very little like what they became known for. Uh, Post-punk with a psychedelic bent seems to be like the common, you know, description. Uh, in 1985, when it became clear that they had a special frontman and a phenomenal vocalist in Cornell, they brought in veteran Seattle scenester uh, Scott Sundquist to play drums in order for Cornell to focus on his singing. Now, this lasted for a year until uh, Sundquist's desire to spend more time with his family drove him to leave the band. But right before he did, they contributed three tracks to a compilation album issued by independent Seattle-based record label CZ Records called a Deep Six, featuring, yes, six different bands. Go uh, figure. This, yeah, I know. This 1986 record was meant to be a showcase for the nascent uh, Seattle music scene, which really wasn't thought of that much during this time. And while it didn't sell well at the time, it is a historic album because it really is the first full-length grunge rock album. Um, Green River's release, Come On Down, from, the, the, from 1985, is actually an EP. So anyway, um, these were all bands who were indebted to and influenced by punk rock, but slowed things down and added elements of heavy metal and classic 1970s rock. Yet, they were all different from each other. You had the Melvins, who blended Black Sabbath-style sludge with the intense rhythms of Black Flag. You had Green River, who would later splinter into Mud Honey and Mother Lovebone, the latter morphing into Pearl Jam, who took the 1975, 1970s hard rock and glam of Aerosmith and the New York Dolls and drenched it in snotty punk attitude. You had Malfunction, led by singer Andy Wood, who would eventually front Mother Lovebone, who were basically an ironic punk rock take on Kiss. Um, yep. You had the U-Men, the oldest of these bands, who weren't really grunge, but rather more in line with first-generation punk. You had Skin Yard, arguably the worst of the bunch, <laughs> who were a little too indebted to indulgent and show-offy prog rock. Yet, you know, guitarist Jack and Dino would go on to produce the essential early yes. recordings of many of Seattle's biggest and best bands. Yeah, J Jack and Dino is one of the more important uh, folks in that uh, early stage. And yeah. Skinyard might be the worst of those bands. Pretty good band. Uh, yeah, and then you had Soundgarden, whose sound by this time had gotten heavier and more abrasive uh, thanks to Kim Thiel's injection of like uh, his, his very unique metal but not quite metal guitar riffage. 
Sure. Um, there are three songs on this compilation, Heretic, Tears to Forget, and uh, All Your Lies, would be re-recorded in much better fashion in later records. But with the Deep Six compilation, you already have a glimpse of the unique, intoxicating sound that Soundgarden brought to the table. Dark, druggy, hazy, slightly psychedelic, off-kilter with weird time signatures, smothering with heavy guitars, and yes, even sexy. Soundgarden had the richest sound of any of the early Seattle bands, and the one that grew on the listener more after repeated listens. They didn't bludgeon you over the head with accessibility. They planted seeds in your ear that grew over time. Um, yeah. they, could be, they could be appreciated by metalheads, punkers, and art school students alike. They could be appreciated by macho male rockers, but they also appealed to women. Uh, and in Chris Cornell, they had arguably the greatest, most range-possessing singer of the entire Seattle scene. Yeah, he, he certainly, I suspect, is the only guy who actually possessed four octaves uh, out of the whole bunch. Uh, that was a good overview. Uh, the fascinating thing about this is that this is we're talking about basically 84 to uh, 88. Uh, essentially, these are a bunch of college-aged and grad school-aged guys that were friends hanging out in bars and were just kind of uh, growing uh, together uh, as a musical community. And I, I do agree with your assessment that Soundgarden was the first of these uh, bands to, to uh, develop a truly uh, singular aesthetic, that the idea yeah. that, that they had a Soundgarden aesthetic. Uh, what I would say is, yeah, the, the songs and uh, putting it all together as a band came much later, but you know, Kim Thiel, uh, and I'll get used to saying that Thiel, uh, definitely had uh, a very unique, uh, disposition and, uh, kind of experimental. You could tell that guy had a lot of fun uh, with his guitar and, and his drugs. And so they developed the aesthetic, uh, and they had an original, uh, well, there, we'll get into this, but they kind of had an original uh, songwriting template that it was a good starting place. And obviously, within the span of five years, they uh, they ascended uh, incredibly. And just in terms of their improvement and their development uh, as a band. So uh, moving on. So we have this early formative period and they really this is about 87 is when. Uh, these bands and these artists and these friends start to go from the bars onto labels and are starting to get heard outside of Seattle. Tell us. Yeah. Let, yeah. This is around 1987, 88. Um, by early 87, uh, former skin yard drummer, Matt Cameron was uh Soundgarden's drummer at this point and the permanent drummer and the band's sound and reputation as a, as a live act went through the roof. Um, this was so much so that Jonathan Poneman who was at the time a DJ for Seattle public radio station KCMU, later to be called KEXP, uh, was so enthralled with them that he offered to fund a recording and a release by the band. Uh, Kim Thiel referred him to his old friend, Bruce Pavitt, and with $20,000, Pavitt and Poneman created Sub Pop Records. Yes, folks, Soundgarden were the reason Sub Pop was founded. Um, they got in the studio with former Skin Yard guitarist Jack and Dino, like, like you mentioned earlier, Chris, to record the Screaming Life EP, 
one of the essential works of early grunge, and in my opinion, one of the best rock EPs of all time. Um, the single, Hunted Down, may as well be Soundgarden's mission statement with Thail's grimy, down-tuned guitar riff, Cameron's steady drumming that explodes into crazy syncopation in the fade-out outro, and Yamamoto's slinky bass. Uh, the version of Tears to Forget grabs you by the throat much harder here than on the Deep Six version with a distinctly black flaggish hardcore punk energy. Oh, and, yeah. And Cornell showing off his peel to paint off the walls vocal range. Uh, the best song on the EP, in my opinion, is Nothing to Say, which has an insane, overpowering, doomy riff that is very similar to the classic riff uh, on Slaves and Bulldozers uh, four yeah. years later. Good call. Almost, almost the same riff. Um, yeah. In 1988, they put out a second sub-pop EP, a very short four-track offering called FOP, which you mentioned earlier, Chris. Mm -hmm. um, while not a live recording, it was recorded on stage at Seattle's Moore Theater as if the band were playing live. Uh, the title track is a heavy grungified version of a song by 1970s R&B funk group, The Ohio Players. Um, in my opinion, interesting idea, but not the best executed idea. Uh, much better is the Cornell-penned pogo-riffing Kingdom of Cum, uh, one of the catchiest songs in Soundgarden's early catalog. Yeah. And the, the EP ends with a vicious version of Green River's Swallow My Pride, uh, one whose vocals by Cornell, of course, and uh, and the rough sound and the raunchy guitars just bury uh, uh, the original. Uh, by this time, uh, Cornell's girlfriend, Susan Silver, had become the band's manager. Yep. And while the Seattle grunge sound was still an underground thing, the buzz surrounding the Screaming Life EP meant several major record labels were contacting the band. Nevertheless, yeah. Soundgarden were a band that came from punk rock ideology, and it was important for them that their first album be released on an indie label, specifically Black Flag guitarist Greg Ginn's SST label, former home of the Minutemen, Husker Du, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., and the, Mutt, the Meat Puppets, one of Kurt Cobain's and Kim Thayil's favorite bands. So it was on SST that Soundgarden released their debut album, Ultra Mega OK, ominously enough on Halloween 1988. Um, I know. Yeah. The full range of Soundgarden's richly textured, dark, trippy, heavy, yet sexy, addictive sound is featured on this album. And well, well, you mentioned, Chris, the songwriting itself isn't as consistent as it would be on later Soundgarden albums. There's still some mind-blowing stuff here. Yeah, um, Flower especially. Yeah, the single. It's the single. It yeah. actually got some airplay on the MTV show 120 Minutes, and you can yeah. see why. Uh, with, a, with a classic, winding, grinding riff by Kim Thayil, the yeah. song unexpectedly breaks into a very psychedelic-flavored bridge before writing that evil riff uh to the oh, end yeah i mean it, yeah it, it it really is and and it's worth mentioning at this point that kim thiel wrote uh he uh in those early eps and albums he wrote most of the music uh at, at yeah. the beginning and in a way he was kind of the star of the band even before cornell i mean cornell was still working to find his voice and to find his uh to kind of find his calling uh but thiel i mean he had the guitar he had the aesthetic and like you said that there's that uh 
there's that bulldozers uh, riff that was kind of there, you know, like, like, you know, Neil Young has a standard Neil, like default Neil Young riff. Well, yeah, that, that, that one is, there's that kind of menacing, you know, boom, 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 boom. You know, that's, that's kind of their thing. Alter Mega Okay. It's an interesting record because it was done on SST. Yes. Uh, they basically were kind of shotgun uh, wedding forced into a production arrangement with somebody they didn't know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the the album was recorded in part in Seattle, but partly in Oregon. And so, uh, you know, Chris Cornell has said, uh, it did say uh, that he was very disappointed in that record because he felt like SST and this producer really didn't get what was happening in Seattle and kind of took the uh, the sound and the mix and what they were doing more in a uh, more in sort of a metal, uh, more sort of uh, orthodox direction that wasn't really true to what was happening in the, the, the bars and clubs uh, of Seattle. Me, I don't care. I think it's a good record. Uh, I actually think it's better than uh, the record we're going to talk about next. Uh, you well, know, I mean, quite, there, quite there, there's some other there's some other really good songs on Ultra Mega. Okay, oh, absolutely. All, All your lies, which was originally on the Deep Six, is redone. Yes. Much better here with the with all its changing rhythms, shifting riffs, each one nastier than the previous. And Cornell's, like I would say, imperious vocals. You have Nazi Driver, which sounds as wicked and as evil as the title suggests. Yeah, it's a great song. <laughs> With his pile driver riff, Matt Cameron's intense drum workout, and that unexpectedly flashy riff and time signature change in the bridge. Um, no, it's not Soundgarden's best, but the album is an excellent introduction to the band's innovative sound. Oh, absolutely. And it's worth mentioning, too, that uh, they ha- they do a cover of Howlin' Wolf's Smokestack Lightning on this yeah. album, yeah. Sex- Sexy Time Blues. And it's really, really good, which makes me wonder why they didn't do that more. That kind of blues, uh, you know, that Cornell and Thale, uh, Thiel, excuse me, uh, they they could do blues. Uh, right. And they could do blues very, very well. Uh, but they eschewed that for the more sort of psychedelic and uh, mystical and uh, plain old stonerish. Uh, you know, but if they had wanted to do blues, they could have done blues. Uh, and so uh, that's a real revelation uh, on this record. And it really kind of uh, kind of stands up. Well, the next period of Soundgarden, as you mentioned, um, the Louder Than Love era, uh, the 1989-1990 period when Soundgarden finally joined the ranks of the major labels when they signed with A&M Records. Uh, the resultant second album and major label debut was Louder Than Love, which, like the previous album, was drenched in the, the doomy, sludgy, subterranean soundscape that by now was the band's trademark. And also, like the previous album, the quality of the songwriting itself was up and down, but when it was up, Boy, was it was awesome. It up. Boy, boy yeah. was it up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the single and minor rock radio hit, Hands All Over, is one of the band's greatest songs and defining anthems. From the distorted psychedelia that serves as the band's intro to Kim Thiel's twisted yet chugging riff and 
eerie lead lines that drive the song. Uh, the track is a showcase for one of Chris Cornell's most affecting melodies, his Robert Plant through molasses vocal wail, and uh, the apocalyptic lyrics about environmental disaster. Um, Gun, one of several songs on the album with sexual connotations, for better or for worse, <laughs> uh, is a classic example of Soundgarden's mastery of shifting tempos and time signatures for the purpose of creating more dynamic intensity, a testament to drummer Matt Cameron's virtuoso skills. And uh, it's all underpinned by Thiel's continuously unfolding riff patterns. Um, Get on the Snake may be the dumbest titled song on any Soundgarden record, <laughs> but yeah. the lean, mean, cocksure interlocked 70s inspired groove between thail and bassist hiro yamamoto makes you want to forget the lyrics yeah it, um, it, it is a kick-ass dumbass song for sure un- unfortunately this album also contains the song big dumb sex and it's a boneheaded lyrical refrain hey i know what to do i want to fuck 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 you fuck you um to be fair Cornell and Thiel always maintained that they were trying to do a send-up and, and they were trying to satirize the L.A. glam hair metal scene. Unfortunately for Soundgarden, irony never sat well with them. Nope. And the song comes across <laughs> as a little too sincere, despite the band's intent. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, that's the thing. You know, by this time, I will give this that, you know, Cornell's he's, well, you know, he's not mature as a songwriter, but he's certainly maturing. At this point, he's a very good writer of dumbass metal songs. Uh, really fun, really dumb rock and metal songs. Like you said, there's Get on the Snakes, uh, Get on the Snake, there's Big Dumb Sex, and then the best of these is full-on Kevin's Mom, uh, which, uh, no joke, is about three boys and one of the boys' mama, uh, (laughs) and and it is a train on Kevin's Mom. A little little disturbing. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's a really kind of sophomoric sexuality on here, uh, which to me, uh, makes me wonder if Susan Silver, uh, needed to have a deep conversation with her husband, uh, (laughs) or at least they needed to get it on a whole lot more than they were, uh, at that time. Probably. Yeah. So who knows? But anyway, like I said, but the, you know, loud love, uh, and you know, the, the highlights on this record are real highlights. I mean, they're, they're really Actually, like, uh, there's some really kick-ass uh, uh, songs on here. It's like probably three or four uh, classic uh, metal songs. They're not really grunge songs. They're more metal songs to me. Uh, at you know, at this point, uh, worth mentioning, by the way, and this is uh, kind of funny. So the producer on this record is a dude named Terry Date. Uh, that you know, A and M uh, hooked them up uh, with him. Uh, before this, uh, dates, most notable work was probably dream theaters when dream and day unite from 1989, uh, which for dream theater fans, uh, the ones that will actually admit to being dream theater fans, uh, this might be Mike Portnoy's, uh, Portnoy's finest, uh, uh, hours of drummer. However, before this, he also produced three albums by metal church. And then after this record, he does mother love bones, apple. Okay. He does uh, several of Pantera's albums in the 90s. Cool. Uh, he did uh, White Zombies Astro Creep 2000, which I actually love. I think that's underrated. And then he segued into doing four Limp Biscuit records. Uh, <laughs> so uh, very strange uh, career arc. But anyway, uh, the, the guy definitely had a, um, uh, he definitely was a metalish uh, producer. Uh, he, 
he was able to kind of uh, capture, he put it all in there. So it's kind of this sort of low hanging, um, almost echoey uh, treatment uh, of grunge. And so it was, uh, it, I've, I honestly, I've always thought of, you know, if grunge is kind of a genre that has diversity in it, uh, Soundgarden is probably the most orthodox metal. I really think they're the most metalish uh, of all those bands. I mean, maybe you could say Alice in Chains, but Alice in Chains is sort of more, I don't know what, what their thing is. They're sort of more kind of like amped up classic rock. Whereas I, I think, I think Soundgarden is just like a total metal band. In my opinion, I mean, well, they they were kind, of, uh, they were that during this period, and the thing is, the, about louder than love is what happened after that after the album was released. That was very consequential, sure. Um, because shortly before touring for the album, Yamamoto left the band and was replaced for the tour by Jason Everman, who also played with Nirvana for a while as a second guitarist before getting fired. And uh, throughout the years, Yamamoto, you're talking about the metal aspect. Yamamoto has been pretty open as to why he left the band. It was a combination of things. He was uncomfortable being in a quote unquote big band on a major label. And also, more importantly, he didn't want to be labeled as a heavy metal artist. Uh, He didn't like heavy metal in general. And uh, he thought Soundgarden was drifting a little far too into that and being labeled as that. And uh, he just—he also just—he just overall didn't like the increasingly heavy direction uh, of the music, and uh, all of this unhappiness led to the departure of him, one of the band's founding members. Nevertheless, it was Yamamoto's leaving, and Everman later being fired for the second time <laughs> by an iconic Seattle band, poor Jason Everman, yep. uh, that opened the door for uh, Ben Shepard joining his bassist adding a new punk-inflected dimension to the band's sound and their songwriting, uh, solidifying the classic lineup that would produce three of the best rock albums of the 1990s. On this episode, Chris and I waxed rhapsodically on the greatness and legacy of the mighty Soundgarden. On the next episode, we begin our long-awaited, long-teased, super-ambitious series on the era of music that birthed Soundgarden. The first golden age of rock was all that pioneering rock and roll from the 1950s. The second golden age of rock was the technicolored apotheosis of creativity that was the mid-1960s to the very early 1970s. The third golden age of rock was the spiky, anarchic, punk, post-punk, new wave vibes of 1976 to 81. At long last... The curmudgeons will present to you the fourth golden age of rock, nine episodes encapsulating that riveting decade of the 1990s when it seemed that rock and roll could save the world again and the genre exploded with innovation and timeless masterworks, and likely for the last time. Join us next week as we begin our epic series the fourth golden age of rock. Ben Shepard uh, comes in and makes helps this band transform into something completely and in some ways wildly different. Uh, yeah, he, there's a punk element, but there's almost not an avant-garde. He, he's Ben Shepard's a little bit of an odd dude that had a yeah. uh, uh, true story. He learned how to play bass in order to join Soundgarden. He was a he was a very uh, enthusiastic fan 
of Soundgarden, even while he yeah. was doing his own stuff in the Seattle scene. And uh, I guess he was influenced by Yamamoto's bass playing, which is surprising because I don't think it was all that great. Right. Uh, you know, and, and really on Ladder and Love in the mix, it's barely discernible. But so he learns how to play bass. He's a guitarist who learns how to play bass to join this band. And he really, in some ways, he was a bassist who you could tell was a guitarist because yeah. he does some really interesting things. Uh, uh, he, he, you know, the pocket wasn't for him. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't much of one to stay in the pocket. And so really when you get the bad motor finger, we'll talk about this extensively here in a bit, it really only takes 45 seconds to realize that Soundgarden has become a much different and much better band than the one we heard two years before this one. And, uh, you know, and so then we find ourselves saying, and this is with Rusty Cage, which opened up uh, Bad Motorfinger. You're like, wait a second. Uh, This is, you know, wait. So it's that band from two years ago. But wait, this is also legit already one of the best metal bands in the world too yeah but yeah l- l- let me set the stage for bad motor finger sure <laughs> by all means uh, go ahead yeah um the year 1991 was a halcyon year for rock music and one of the greatest years ever for the genre of rock and we'll get into that topic in much greater detail two episodes from now but let's just say that that year saw the release of all-time great classic albums by the following bands nirvana pearl jam the Red Hot Chili Peppers, U2, My Bloody Valentine, Primal Scream, Metallica, and R.E.M. And Soundgarden's third album and first masterpiece, Bad Motorfinger, without a doubt, belongs near the top of any list of best albums of 91. Not only that, it's easily one of the greatest and most era-defining rock albums of the decade, and in my opinion, one of the greatest albums ever made, period. Um, it's the album that broke Soundgarden through to the mainstream rock world at a time when grunge and alternative rock were changing the rock music landscape. It's the album that gave them their first rock radio hit with Outshined and MTV staples at the time with Rusty Cage, like you mentioned, Chris, and Jesus Christ Pose. It's the album that got them not one, but two touring stints opening for Guns N' Roses, Axl Rose was a huge fan and looked up to Chris Cornell as a vocalist. And one opening stint, uh, uh, one stint opening for um, Skid Row. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and a prime slot in 1992's epic Lollapalooza Festival alongside the Chili Peppers and Pearl Jam. More importantly, it's the album that bolstered, you know, bolstered now, as you said, by new bassist Ben Shepard, his playing and his songwriting chops. It saw the band's music improve by leaps and bounds in regard to focus, intensity, and consistency. Um, the, the Sabbath Zeppelin-esque heaviness was now even heavier, <laughs> thanks yeah. to Terry Date's much improved better crisp production on this record. Uh, Kim Thiel's guitars and Shepard's bass locked in monster grooves that weren't there with any of their previous bass players. And Matt Cameron's drumming never sounded cleaner or more virtuosic. Um, Cornell's songwriting took a clearer and more melodic, even more accessible bent. Oh, absolutely. Um, his powerhouse voice showed the full range of what he could do from one song to another. And his lyricism even took another step up. No more dirty sex jokes. Uh, as Thail himself said, the lyrics are, quote, like reading a novel about a man's conflict with himself and society or the government or his family 
or the economy or anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, pretty, pretty much. I mean, this is like Cornell uh, definitely growing up and starting to question himself, everything around him. Uh, you know, relationships, religion, uh, you know, like, you know, you name it. There's a, you know, like you said, I think the, the key word and everything you just said was focus. Yeah. Um, uh, certainly the most distinctively down-tuned album from any band not named Black Sabbath. Uh, yeah. You know, they really experimented with that. And uh, they just, uh, for whatever reason, I think they were freer. They were more confident. Uh, you know, they had been, they had done one spin through on a major label and had survived. And I think that they uh, really saw an opportunity to go for it. Uh, you know, like I said, Shepard probably adds an energy and uh, and a, you know, and a sophistication that they had never had before. And then, you know, they obviously were captured by the spirit because Jesus Christ pose is unbelievable. Yeah, let me let me let me get into describing these songs. You know, sure. Um, I, like the lyrics. You know, like we said, uh, Cornell's darker lyrical outlook. You know, nothing encapsula- encapsulates that better than outshines uh, deadpan declaration of despair. I'm looking California, but feeling Minnesota. Yep. <laughs> uh, while outshine maybe one of grunge rock's definitive anthems, like you said, Chris, Jesus Christ pose with its ungodly polyrhythmic onslaught and some of the most twisted, gnarliest guitar riffage ever recorded. Oh, practically, yeah. Practically invented the template for Mastodon and their early albums. Yep, pretty um, much. Rusty yep. Cage, one of rock and roll's all-time greatest opening tracks, shows the band's underrated debt to the heavy prog rock of Rush. People don't talk about their influence on Soundgarden. Yeah, that, that's and, true. Uh, yeah. the, mani- the maniacally intense face pollution answers the question, what would Black Flag sound like if they went all math rock? Drawing Flies. I love that track because it grooves along like a punked up Aerosmith, complete yeah. with that tongue-in-cheek horn section. Um, like like you said, Chris, before Bad Motorfinger, Soundgarden were a really good band with a startlingly original sound. After Bad Motorfinger, they just became world-beating titans. You know? There's a lot to love uh, about this record. Like you said, it's just a, it's it's Titanic. Uh, let me share a great quote, by the way, yeah. before I forget on uh, Jesus Christ Post. It's Matt Cameron talking to Modern Drummer in 1994. Uh, and so the song, you know, all four guys have a song credit on yeah. it. So it comes out of kind of improvisation. And so uh, Cameron talks about the song. He says, quote, as soon as I played this pattern, uh, we dove, uh, we dove right in and within an hour we had the guts of the song. The approach we took on this one was pure assault of the senses. Canadians can dance to this song. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. A l- little strange, but it, you know, Hey, why not? All right. Well now, how do you follow up an era defining classic bad motor finger and one of the 50 greatest hard rock albums ever made? Not so easily, but these guys sure made it seem easy by unleashing a rock and roll masterpiece of mood, texture, stylistic range, sonic innovation, and impeccable songcraft. Super Unknown, which was released during the epochal spring of 1994, is more than just a rock classic and more than just one of the iconic albums of the 1990s. In my opinion, it's one of the greatest albums ever made, period. 
Um, it was once on Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums ever in 2012, and then omitted in the 2020 version of that list. And that is just a fucking travesty and an indictment on the musical tastes of the people who voted on that panel, no matter how ethnically and gender diverse that panel was. Yeah. Um, by this time, Soundgarden was already known for their pioneering punk metal fusion submerged in eerie murk. In other words, grunge. <laughs> yes. Uh, on Super Unknown, though, producer Michael Beinhorn pulls off the tricky feat of bringing out the psychedelic elements always lurking in the band's sound while couching it in a very rough, raw garage rock sheen that really complemented Matt Cameron's hard-hitting drum sound. Perfectly. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Middle, East, Middle Eastern and Indian music and tones were explored in Ben Shepard's Head Down in Half. Uh, the apocalyptic power ballad Black Hole Sun was a worldwide smash hit and remains the band's signature song. Spoon Man is a riffing monster of a groove that borders on funk and was a huge hit on rock radio. Uh, Fell on Black Days and The Day I Tried to Live are brilliant mid-tempo platforms for Chris Cornell's insane vocal range and dark turmoil-ridden lyrics, as sure. well as staples of rock radio for years and should be on classic rock radio now. Yeah, um, uh, gr the, great, the main, great yeah. breakup songs. Great breakup yeah, songs. I'll totally. give you that. Uh, the mainstream finally caught up to Soundgarden as well. Um, Super Unknown was their first and only album to hit number one on Billboard's album chart, and they won two Grammy Awards for Best Hard Rock Performance, Black Hole Sun, and Best Metal Performance, Spoon Man, as well as a Grammy nomination for Best Rock Album. Um, by this time, Soundgarden had firmly entrenched themselves as one of Seattle's big four bands and one of the greatest and most respected bands on the planet. Little did anyone know that interband relations concerning their creative direction would soon tear them apart. Yeah, uh, let me let me say a few things about uh, this record. Uh, well, first off, it's one of my favorite records of all time uh, because it's just basically it's perfect. Uh, it's one of the more perfect long uh, hard rock records I think uh, out there. Uh, it's meaner, it's leaner, it's darker, it's angrier. Like you said, there's the psychedelic limit to it. Uh, amazing drum sound. Uh, the production is there. The songwriting is there. Uh, Quantum Leap for Chris Cornell as a songwriter in terms of uh, the maturity. And, uh, yeah, there's a depression, but also there's an angst, but also a well-earned uh, uh, edge, uh, you know, on stuff like My, uh, My Wave and Fresh Tendrils and, and stuff like that, Fourth of July. Uh, there's uh, just a lot of just crunching and blasting and uh, razor wire riffs and just all of this uh, uh, through it. And uh, it really all comes together uh, on what I think is their magnus opus, the greatest moment uh, uh, in their catalog. And that is the title song, uh, Super Unknown. Uh, it's, I think, that certainly my favorite song by them. I also think it's their best song. Uh, Nimble as hell, uh, awesome riff, uh, just, uh, you know, incredible arrangement with, uh, the way that it's, uh, it's layered with the rhythm guitar with Kim Thale doing his, his, his crazy shit, uh, some of his best soloing, uh, 
uh, really sophisticated song structure. There's an exotic shift into the chorus. Uh, there's, uh, uh, I think Cornell's, uh, lyrics, uh, that to, or his vocals are probably the most psychedelic touch on the entire record, you know, with that, uh, with that echo, um, uh, there's a real soul to it. There's a mysticism, uh, the, uh, the lyrical uh, concept about that abyss into the super unknown is there. Uh, it is the one song in their catalog that I could play on repeat all day every day and not get tired of it. And, uh, more personally, uh, this was my go-to, uh, last minute paper writing album, uh, during, uh, my undergraduate, uh, tenure at Syracuse university. Uh, and so, and it's also an album that's really grown as I've grown. It's one, it's, it's interesting when I was 19, when this record first came out, uh, I used to, I really loved mailman and limo wreck. And now these days, I love Fresh Tendrils and Kickstand, uh, which I think respectively are the tightest, most uh, banging songs that Cameron and Thiel uh, ever wrote uh, uh, for this band. So, yeah, a special special album, uh, really, to for them to go from some of the goofiness that they had going on in Screaming Life and Fop to this really profound, uh, really uh, sharp really focused, uh, really incredibly well-produced. Beinhorn was a genius producer, uh, did a bunch of stuff in the mid nineties of this, of this, uh, of this style. Uh, just, just a wonderful album. Yeah. It's perfect all the way through. I mean, it, it, it was, it, it was, it was a huge hit on release. Critics loved it and it, it hasn't aged one bit. It still no. sounds great. It's still like, like it could be recorded and released today and it will be better than most of the music that's out there now. Yeah. Definitely better be- definitely better than Black Country New Road. Yeah, yeah, that is true. And uh let me share, by the way, uh to your point about how it how it holds up. Uh a shockingly great retrospective review of this record that was published by Pitchfork. Go figure. Yeah, exactly. In twenty th- in twenty fourteen, this is by writer Stuart Berman, and uh, this says pretty much it all about not just super unknown, but about uh, all great albums of all stripes. And this is wonderful yeah. writing too. And uh, I'll start. He said uh, Berman writes. Usually, it's a bad sign when the wild child frontman of your favorite group cuts his hair and starts wearing shirts. But the clean-cut Cornell that emerged with Super Unknown was emblematic of the album's mission to deliver maximal effect with minimal minimal histrionics. By the way, that's a perfect description. Uh, With its despairing worldview, gold-plated production, and CD-stuffing 71-minute running time, Super Unknown is a quintessential 90s artifact. But thanks to its still-formable, high-wire balance of hooks and heft, the album nonetheless represents, some 20 years later, the platonic ideal of what a mainstream hard rock record should be. Yeah. And, and even if that's an ideal which few contemporary bands aspire, aside from, say, Queens of the Stone Age, Super Unknown remains a useful model for any left-of-center artist hoping to achieve accessibility without sacrificing identity. That's the most important thing accessibility without sacrificing identity. They do it beautifully on this record. Earlier in the episode, we spoke of the brilliant band Big Thief and their background as graduates of the famed Berklee College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts. 
Your resident curmudgeons often say that the more prodigal the musician is and the more comfortable and competent they are with music theory, the more likely we are to not enjoy that record. Sometimes muso's gonna muso, and that can be painful. However, it turns out there are many exceptions to this rule when it comes to Berkeley alumni. So here is a quick shout out to some fabulously trained Berkeley grads that may actually surprise you. Annie Clark, a.k.a. St. Vincent. Trey Parker of South Park fame. Melissa Etheridge. Susan Tedeschi. Quincy Jones. Jillian Welsh. Amy Mann. And Donald Fagan of Steely Dan. Keep cranking out those geniuses of all levels of virtuosity as well as tolerability, Berkeley College of Music. The world is a better place with you in it. As I mentioned earlier, by 1995, interband tension started to bubble over the surface, mainly between Chris Cornell and guitarist Kim Thiel over the musical direction of the band. Cornell wanted to go in a less guitar-heavy, smoother, perhaps even more acoustic area. Thiel, however, wanted to maintain the riffage, but delve more into psychedelia and exotic, at least for Western ears, Eastern music. Um, what resulted was 1996's Down on the Upside, the final album of the band's classic period. Uh, the album received reviews that ranged from very good to moderate, and the album sounds exactly like what you would expect uh, from uh, from a band whose creative drive was being pulled in different directions. Sure. Um, the album featured a greater number of songs with trippy soundscapes and acoustic textures. It also featured some of the most abrasive pedal to the metal full-on rock onslaughts the band ever committed to tape. It also featured songs with some of the prettiest pop melodies Cornell ever conjured up. And while some would call this jarring, I think the album benefits from this multifaceted nature in that it it makes it, if not better than the previous two albums, which it isn't, it's certainly more dynamic and eclectic. Sure. Um, in fact, I think the album has aged very well throughout the years. Um, it's bold experiment, uh, experimentation holding up really well upon repeated listening. I see Down on the Upside as being for Soundgarden what No Code was for Pearl Jam. Um, both albums coming out the same year. Uh, an album that perplexed fans and listeners at first, but over time revealed itself to uh, to be singular and unique gems in their discography. Uh, in this case, a singular and unique gem for Soundgarden, easily one of their three best. Um, the three singles from the album, Pretty News, Burden in My Hand, and Blow Up the Outside World, all charted well on rock radio and, not surprisingly, are the most conventional-sounding Soundgarden tracks on the album. But is that a bad thing? Well, considering that no band who has been influenced by them has come close to matching them, Soundgarden by numbers is still pretty fucking great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, you made the point about this being an eclectic record. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, and uh, the main culprit of the eclectic-ness uh, of this record is Ben Shepard. Uh, eclecticism. This is eclecticism. Eclecticness, eclecticism. Eh, you know, whatever. Yeah, we're all colloquial <laughs> here in, in curmudgeon rock land. Uh, ben Shepard writes six songs on this record. Uh, they're all great uh, in their own ways. They they veer from uh, the weird uh, to the wonderful uh, Ty Cobb, uh, which was the fourth song, uh, fourth single on this record is fucking great. Uh, yeah, just, it's just it's well, just a, a pure punk song with a really yeah. kind of silly uh, uh, bridge. 
uh, to it. Yeah. But then he also, he has Dusty, which should have been a single, uh, which is just, uh, you know, has awesomely rangy vocals from Cornell. And it has this uh, kind of uh, soft, loud dynamic where it's a slithering, uh, exotic, like mysterious riff on the verse. And then this kind of these sharp pounces on the chorus. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, it's just... Uh, I mean, like, 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 like we said, I mean, the, the three songs that were like the big rock radio hits were great, mm-hmm. but like more interesting are what music geeks like us call the album tracks. Yes. You know, um, yeah. Over Overfloater is stunning in how yeah. much of a rewrite it is of Led Zeppelin's No Quarter. Oh, yeah. But considering how no band in the history of rock repackaged Zeppelin as effectively and as originally as Soundgarden. No shit. Them, them yeah. getting dangerously close to Zeppelin pastiche, yet pulling off one of the album's standout tracks is a testament to how, to how ballsy and confident uh, this band was at this time. Like you said, Ty Cobb is the closest Soundgarden ever came to straight-up hardcore punk, and uh, No Attention and Never Named are the types of reckless throat-grabbing tempo shifting time signature twisting behemoths that they did better than any of the other Seattle bands. Dusty, uh, which is perhaps the best, like you said, the best of the Ben Shepard songs on this record is an example of what a entertainment weekly's David Brown, uh, when, when he reviewed this record, his claim that quote, few bands since Led Zeppelin, there they go again, <laughs> have so crisply mixed instruments, both acoustic and electric, uh, and I agree. It's a song that could have rocked out as well in an unplugged setting as on stage in an all-electric setting. Um, you have Never the Machine Forever, the lone Thiel track on the record, where he also wrote the lyrics, um, is proof positive of the, the weirdo, off-kilter, uh, weird time signature, mute, mutated metal that he wanted the band to uh, uh, go and push forward with, and Chris Cornell didn't. Um, like Overfloater, Boot Camp is that kind of mid-tempo, atmospheric metal that the band was uh, starting to excel at, and it ends the album um, in the most uh, poignant way uh, possible. Um, however, you know, the tensions that the band suffered while making the album unfortunately carried over to their live shows at this time with the band's energy and enthusiasm about playing with each other, faltering to a point that the performances started to sound unfocused and uninspired. Um, yeah. they, jo- they joined the Lollapalooza tour on the summer of 96, the one that inexplicably had Metallica headlining, and, <laughs> and followed that with lengthy tours of Europe and North America. Um, in February 97, during the last show of the tour in Hawaii, Shepard threw a tantrum on stage, tossed away his bass, and walked off with the band following him. Um, Even with Cornell coming back to do a solo acoustic set, it was unfortunately an ignominious end to one of the greatest bands of its era and one of the most original and inventive bands America ever produced. Yep. And uh, a couple of laments to share about uh, down on the upside. And no, you're right. And it was it was sad that they they fell apart. And it's inevitable. Uh, But the couple of laments I'll have is yet Kim Fayil. Uh, like I said earlier in the episode, he started off kind of as the star of the band. And by uh, this album, he's pretty much reduced to, you know, he's kind of the, uh, he's basically a session man for Cornell and Shepard. 
uh, in in a lot of ways by this by this time. Uh, yeah. he, he only has the one metal tornado song, as I'll call it, "Never the Machine Forever." Yeah. Uh, and so he's he's really been uh, minimized, which couldn't have been uh, uh, made him too happy. Uh, and so that must have uh, been frustrating. And then really, if you want to look at it, uh, yeah, I mean, they got burned out on touring. Uh, the celebrity machine kind of ate them alive, I guess, at this point. Uh, but I would say that one of the things that kind of led to this downslide and eventually to their disbanding is that uh, this album uh, is a classic case of when a popular band on a major label uh, releases that the label releases something that sounds like what the fans would expect as yeah. the first single instead of the obvious hit single that they should have released. In other words, pretty noose yeah. comes out before burden in my hand. Um, yeah. I really think that that uh, kind of uh, shot their momentum to hell, whatever momentum was left only because you got to remember in 96, uh, the grunge thing was uh, was no longer a fad, and the uh, yeah. you know no code. I mean, obviously, you know Pearl Jam kind of you know suicided themselves as a superstar mainstream yeah. band, so they're on the downswing. Uh, Screaming Trees releases the masterpiece Dust, which didn't sell worth a shit, yeah. uh, which I never understood. Uh, even a little bit earlier, Alice in Chains' last record didn't really hit that well in uh, late '95, and so. There was that. Uh, strange but true, by the way. Uh, the only reason Soundgarden was on the Lollapalooza bill in 1996 was because Metallica insisted upon it. Yeah. 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 yeah Metallica was like, no, we're not doing this if Soundgarden's not on there. So, you know, yeah, they really did have respect among uh, the metal uh, community. Right. So, yeah. And so, you know, kind of a sad uh, initial ending. Um, but you could say they kind of went out on top because this is a good record. Uh, this is a great not, record. This is not a bad record at all. And again, I mean, it's like I said, uh, uh, I, I really wish, uh, you know, in retrospect, if if it had been me releasing the singles, it would have been uh, Burden in My Hand first, Dusty Dusty third, and or second, and Ty Cop third. Um, yeah. I think if they'd have done that, they might have had a chance to make it through uh, with some momentum. But as it is, those song, those three songs they released charted well on rock radio. They got, oh, they got yeah. plenty of air. They got oh, plenty of airplay. Oh, I know. And and burden in my hand is still, uh, you know, gets played like a thousand million times a day on rock radio in America. So, you know, you can't say that it was uh, was a failure uh, at all. So now let's get to the end of the end. Uh, the end of and- the end. Yeah, like you said, Soundgarden's second act. <laughs> yep. Uh, the band reunited uh, in 2010 to perform the Lollapalooza Festival again, but by this point, Lollapalooza had become a single city three day event. Um, for the next seven years, uh, they would continue a steady itinerary of festival shows and touring. Uh, in 2012, they released an album of new material, King Animal, that really isn't worth talking about. <laughs> and maybe maybe the worst, most listless, most recycled sounding album in the band's discography. Yeah. Uh, in, in short, it's a testament to the fact that bands have a creative shelf life. And yeah. at some point you just stick to playing the old songs. Well, you also <laughs> you also gotta remember the reason that they reformed was uh, uh, a little bit before 2010, you know, they would get together once in a while to look at their business and all yeah. that. Uh, they were a little bit late on realizing that, hey, the internet might uh, actually uh, be an affinity thing and, you know, kind of the fan clubbish kind of stuff right. that, you know, we have a, a fan base out there that wants to see us out there. And so as they got going, they realized, hey, there's a market 
for this shit for us to come back. And so you're not a lie to say that they were motivated as much by commerce as about as any sort of artistic uh, uh, collaboration. Legacy. Yes. Yeah. They became a legacy act. They wanted to cash in on their legacy. Uh, King Animal is the kind of album that you put out because you have to put out some product uh, in order to have a pretext to right. tour. Uh, and it sure sounds like this. And then it, <laughs> and then it all leads up to the tragic end, which we'll get to in a second. But yeah. before, but before we get there, uh, it's worth, uh, mentioning that, uh, one Matt Cameron became Pearl Jam's drummer. Uh, yeah. and after that band was like, kind of went through a spinal tap phase with drummers, Matt Cameron's been the drummer of that band for 24 years now. Right. Uh, and, uh, I guess, that Soundgarden's comeback phase is not quite enough to make me at least forgive Cornell for that whole audio slave thing. Yeah, what a terrible band. Yeah, which I is, mean, which, which ridiculous. I mean, listen, Soundgarden, awesome band. Rage Against the Machine, awesome band. Audio slave, fucking awful. What with the, the fuck? Well, they had one. <laughs> they had one great lightning in a bottle single, Cochise. Yeah. The rest of it, fucking ridiculously awful. Uh, yeah. Two two great tastes that taste like shit together. Uh, is, is, is pretty much what that album is. Cornell also released some single, uh, some solo records over the years, uh, that didn't quite hit. Um, but anyway, yeah. and this leads us into the unfortunate final act of this tragedy. Yeah. Well, you know, playing the old songs is basically what Soundgarden did until May 18th, 2017, when Chris Cornell was found dead in his Detroit hotel room after having hung himself, you know, a victim of suicide. Now, let me, let, let's, let's, let's put this on the table. In numerous interviews, especially toward the latter part of his life, Cornell admitted to suffering from clinical depression uh, dating back to his teenage years. Um, oddly enough, it wasn't until after Soundgarden broke up that that depression issue manifested itself as alcohol and drug addiction, particularly the pharmaceutical drug OxyContin. Yeah, he was snorting OxyContin. Yes, he was. <laughs> um, and, and drinking on top of it. Yep. And drinking. Uh, he dealt with it on and off for several years, especially during his time in Audio Slave, finally overcoming his addiction in 2005 after getting married to his second wife. Unfortunately, during the last year of his life, Cornell started taking the anti-anxiety drug Ativan. Now, I'm not a pharmacist, but the little research I've done leads me to believe that the kind of super strong pharmaceutical drug that Ativan is does not mix well with people who suffer from clinical depression and have a history of drug abuse. Um, Of course, Cornell started abusing Ativan. Uh, In his excellent book, Dark, Black, and Blue, The Soundgarden Story, music journalist Greg Prado interviewed several musicians who also abused Ativan. And one common theme throughout is the extreme depression that is a side effect of the drug. Um, So let's think about it. Ativan-induced depression plus somebody who already suffers from clinical depression yeah, I'm pretty sure suicide would be on the table. <laughs> yeah, well, that's you know? the thing, and that's and that uh, that's really with any uh, benzo, uh, benzodiazepine. You know, uh, the uh, the class of drug that Ativan is is it's it's a benzo. I you know the the full name escapes me. I actually take a benzo myself. Uh, clinical doses of clonopin. Yeah. Uh, it it's the kind of uh, let's say one. Yeah, if you have a history of depression, it can be a drug of abuse. 
it can be, uh, yes, there is low dose dependence. Even taking a milligram of this shit is a bitch to get off of. But, uh, if you abuse it, if you take it at high dosages, then yeah, uh, it can lead to side effects such as depression and, right. uh, it, it, it's almost like being back on alcohol. And then of course, yeah. if you mix it with stuff, uh, you know, these days it's pretty common for benzos, uh, benzo addicts tend to also be opiate addicts too. Mm. Uh, and so there's a lot of things, but like you said, it, it leads to a dark road if you abuse it. And, uh, yeah, Ad- Ativan and Xanax are the two most dangerous of those drugs. And, uh, Cornell, yeah, he, he found his way to it and he hung himself there and it was Milwaukee, wasn't it? I think it's Detroit. Detroit, Detroit. Yeah. It's Detroit. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and think about Cornell and the depression, you know, all that aside, all one has to do is take a cursory listen through Cornell's lyrics throughout Soundgarden's discography. Well, yeah. You have you have all that dark imagery, the haunting specter of death that informs so many songs, the almost relentless pessimism. I mean, just by reading many of Cornell's lyrics aloud, you'll realize that this isn't too far from Ian Curtis territory, you know? Yeah, pretty much. Um, in, in the words of music writer J.D. Considine in his uh, 1994 review of Super Unknown in Rolling Stone magazine, he said, quote, at its best, Super Unknown offers a more harrowing depiction of alienation and despair than anything on Nirvana's In Utero. Now, I would not go that far. I do not either. It, but yeah. it isn't that far from it either. <laughs> no, no, no. It, 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 it is a close second. I'll, I'll give it yeah. that. It doesn't have all yeah. the body, bodily fluids, codependent stuff, but, right, it's, right. It's, but it's pretty fucking dark. Yeah. And you know, in what the entire Seattle music scene you know, as we all know, has paid a very heavy price for rock artists who wore their depression on their sleeves and converted it to great art as a result. Um, Kurt Cobain, Lane Staley, Chris Cornell, and even more recently, Mark Lanigan, rest in peace, Mark, um, even Malfunctions and Mother Love Bones, Andrew Wood, who wasn't known for his quote unquote darkness must have had some of that darkness to him and that drive and that, that, that some of that darkness in him that drove him uh, to the heroin addiction that eventually took his life. Um, I would even throw non-Seattleites like Scott Weiland in there. Oh, sure. Um, the yeah. good thing about all this tragedy, if there is a good thing to be taken from this, and I'm not sure, I'm, I'm sure their loved ones would not agree, is that you know for a fact these artists meant it when they sang it and when they played it. And yeah. beyond beyond innovation and having an original sound, authenticity was always at the core of Soundgarden's work. Yeah, and and I would say authenticity kind of uh, uh, creeps its way through uh, most of grunge, especially you know obviously right. the the most compelling uh, people uh, and and frontmen in it, and it it really is does make me sad and realize that you know we are a generation and a half removed from the greatness here that. Of right. all of those genius frontmen, at least from Seattle, the only one that's still alive is Eddie Vedder, who's uh, not a Seattleite. <laughs> yeah, well, he's not an well. Yeah, he's he was a, an, an adopted satellite and then moved out uh, right. after ten years. But but be that well, basically, of all those people in the scene, if you want to include Scott Weiland as kind of a uh, uh, an adjunct, um, right? The only one left is Eddie Vedder, and yeah. uh, it's very very sad. And so now here uh, at the end of our discussion, Arturo, as we've uh, discussed uh, the work 
and the uh, the beauty of Soundgarden's catalog. Let us talk about uh, their influence and their ultimate legacy. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you see as the influence of this band and how they've helped define uh, the hard rock that's come after them. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned earlier on this episode that uh, uh, Jesus Christ Pose, their song, was, in my opinion, practically the bedrock for much of what the acclaimed heavy metal band Mastodon did in their early work from the noughties, particularly, you know, uh, uh, Remission, the albums Remission and Leviathan. Now, here are some other bands slash artists who I will claim were deeply influenced by Soundgarden. First, none other than Nirvana and Alice in Chains. Uh, Kurt Cobain went on record several times uh, saying that Soundgarden was one of his favorite bands and a profound influence on Nirvana, particularly uh, the early Bleach era. Uh, the members of Alice in Chains were nothing more than a cheesy hair metal band from the suburbs until they befriended the members of Soundgarden, joined their inner circle, and, according to Jerry Cantrell, got exposed to and hip to what Soundgarden were doing. Uh, within a year, uh, Alice in Chains drastically changed their sound into what they became uh, known for. Another one, Queens of the Stone Age. Oh, and, yeah. And Big for time. that matter... For that matter, Josh Homme's pre-Quatza band, Caius, um, Fu Manchu, Monster Magnet, and any and all bands from that niche stoner rock subgenre that got going in the mid-1990s. Huge debt to Soundgarden. Sure. Um, as weird as this sounds, I count the Mars Volta as one of Soundgarden's offspring. Um, they're ostensibly a, a prog rock band, but the Volta's heavy yet twisty riffs, overbearing heaviness, constantly shifting rhythms, bleakly existential lyrics, and Cedric Bixler of Allah's uh, high-pitched wails owe a lot, I think, to Cornell and Soundgarden's music. Um, one of my favorite bands of the 21st century, the Canadian band Black Mountain. Uh, they hit that sweet spot right between stoner rock and progressive rock, just like Soundgarden. Mm -hmm. And many of their dark, doomy riffs are straight out of the Kim Thaiel playbook. Um, the UK's Electric Wizard, uh, whose oh, yeah. classic 2000 album Dope Throne I covered in our vault segment many episodes ago, are essentially Black Sabbath on acid. And yep. they're oppressively dark oppressively hazy, oppressively heavy, slightly psychedelic sound certainly comes from a post Soundgarden landscape, you know? So those bands and Mastodon, I claim are influences by, of Soundgarden. Uh, yeah. I mean, influence, uh, they're in the DNA. Uh, they've become mythologized, um, for better or worse. And, uh, you know, one of the more incredible, singular, wonderful hard rock bands that ever lived, especially in Absolutely. America. Absolutely. Totally. So, everybody, and ladies, gentlemen, and fellow curmudgeons, in honor of Soundgarden and the fact that their first two EPs were issued on the immortal Sub Pop Records, we welcome our curmudgeonly listeners to a very special sub-pop edition of The Vault, where both Chris and, and, and my selections will be records from the vaunted sub-pop label. 
and coincidentally, both from 1990. My pick, uh, which I will speak about now, is by one of the early, unfortunately under-recognized pioneers of Seattle's grunge sound, the band known as Tad and their EP, Salt Lick. Um, when Tad, <laughs> they have some great titles, song titles and album titles. Yes. I'll get to those. All right. Yes. Um, <laughs> when Tad emerged in 1988 with their debut single and B side Daisy backed by ritual dance, ritual device. Sorry. The only band in the Seattle scene that could match them for sheer bone crunching heaviness were the Melvins, uh, punk rock in their irreverent attitude industrial rock in their churning repetitive riffs and rhythms and heavy metal in their take no bullshit raunch and loudness this band started to get noticed in the rock underground with their 1989 debut album that carried without a doubt one of the greatest album titles in rock and roll history god's God's balls (laughs) God's Balls. What a great album title. Um, Long, arduous tours in the U.S. and abroad with both Nirvana and Mudhoney helped spread the gospel of grunge and gave warning to the soon-to-explode alternative rock revolution. By 1990, uh, the Seattle scene and sub-pop records in particular were starting to garner national and even some international attention. It is in this climate that Tad unleashed Salt Lick. Now, worthy of being on anyone's list of the greatest rock EPs of all time, Salt Lick also proves that Tad were an underrated influence on and quite possibly a progenitor of what became known as New Metal. Um, Korn are often seen as the first New Metal band, and Faith No More, particularly their 1992 album Angel Dust, are seen as the band that laid down the template for it. But Tad, even though they were ostensibly labeled a grunge band, have to be seen as somewhat proto-new metal. Seriously, I mean, just just listen to the EP. Uh, The single Wood Goblins pounds along with that slapping bass sound that uh, Korn's bassist Fieldy became known for and utilized beforehand by Faith No More's Billy Gould. Uh, Singer-guitarist Tad Doyle's bellowing, growling vocals throughout were startling at the time but became the de facto style for most new metal bands later in the decade um hibernation blasts out of the speakers with the kind of dissonant gnarled guitar riff punctuated by bursts of distortion that would become a touchstone of new metal uh potlatch simply overwhelms the listener with the twisted guitar riffage polyrhythmic onslaught and overall dark anger that uh that characterized most, if not all, of new metal. Um, uh, and yes, this EP buries 90% of the entire new metal canon, including Slipknot. <laughs> um, yep. Tad would go on to garner legal controversy on two counts with their 1991 album and their last one for sub pop, Eight Way Santa. Uh, the album cover featured an old lost picture of a hippie couple with the man grabbing the woman's breast. Well, the woman, who by this point was a born-again Christian, found out about it, got upset about it, and sued the band and the label. More trouble followed when the first single from the album, Jack Pepsi, 
was issued featuring the band's name stylized as the Pepsi Cola logo on the single's cover. Oops. <laughs> yeah, this is becoming like a litigation hero sandwich. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pepsi sued, and while a settlement was reached, the money loss was enough to push Bruce Pavitt and Jonathan Poneman, the two heads of Sub Pop, to eventually sell the label to Warner Brothers in 1995 and essentially becoming a subsidiary. Uh, Tad themselves would sign on with another Warner Brothers subsidiary, Giant Records, and release the very strong Inhaler in 1993. The album didn't sell, though, and they were dropped from the label when the company's higher-ups found out that uh, one of Tad's concert posters featured a picture of Bill Clinton smoking, smoking a joint with a caption saying, It's heavy shit. Uh, they, they, they signed on <laughs> with Electra, with Electra records also owned by Warner brothers at this time. They kept signing with Warner brothers subsidiaries. Uh, they released another really good yet underselling album called infrared riding hood in 1995 <laughs> and, were then, and were then dropped from the label where the A&R representative who signed them was fired. Uh, poor Tad had no luck. <laughs> they had great luck with album titles and song titles, but not with anything else. Yeah, uh, much. They would soldier on as a touring band until their breakup in 1999. And while they've become a footnote in the history of grunge rock and the Seattle scene in general, their heavier than heavy discography is well worth checking out, particularly the six song EP Salt Lick. Yeah, a couple of things to mention about Salt Lick, uh, produced by Steve Al, well, recorded by Steve Albini, right, uh, in Chicago. Uh, you know, it, you know, Jack and Dino, obviously, he produced God's Balls and yeah. uh, Albini, and so uh, Tad was the kind of band that you know obviously didn't need much of a producer. They sounded more yeah. like Tad uh, with Albini yeah. than they did with Dino. Uh, right. There's a deluxe version of this uh, EP that's available on Spotify with four uh, additional songs. Uh, none of them are that good, although damaged is hilarious uh, because it's Tad doing the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fucked up and psychotic kind of uh, spoken word rant thing uh, <laughs> to a, to a sludge uh, soundtrack. Uh, Tad, basically if you were to do a single photo pictorial depiction of grunge, uh, nothing would sell it quite like a uh, picture of a uh, 300-pound, sort of ugly, sort of charismatic Tad Doyle in a uh, winter hat and a, uh, a plaid shirt. Uh, that that pretty much would, would be grunge uh, in a nutshell uh, right there as a pictorial. Uh, yeah. Tad was also a big – them and the Melvins were big influences on Nirvana. Uh, Tad, Tad Doyle and Kurt Cobain were very close friends. Uh, I think Tad these days is probably most famous for a bit in, uh, Kurt Cobain's journals, uh, entry where I guess Cobain was fascinated, obviously judging by his lyrics with bodily fluids. And, uh, Tad was the kind of guy who had the stage fright and anxiety and would vomit in a bucket on the bus every day. And I guess Cobain was fascinated by this and was kind of the highlight of his day to be able <laughs> to peer into uh, peer into Tad's puke. 
Uh, <laughs> so yeah, a lot, lot of strange things. And like you said, you know, Tad, you know, the, just like the most cursed band in the world. Like they couldn't stop getting sued and they couldn't stop. <laughs> they couldn't stop pissing off the people that mattered uh, and all that. But what a great, great, great band. I mean, they are yeah. they're definitely one of the progenitors of, of grunge. And uh, it also reminds me of and well, new metal and yeah, new metal yeah, as and, well. And, and, and sound that that's a good call. I think, like you said, that kind of slap bass, that kind of. You know, that kind of heavy, thick, but uh, but very uh, kind of subtly rhythmic uh, stuff and uh, just kind of really uh, kind of growly, screamy, cathartic stuff. Yeah. You know, th- yeah, definitely, uh, definitely makes uh, sense. And just one more comment about Tad. There's a, a Kurt Cobain quote out there that I think is hilarious that it, you know, when he started to get famous, it's like, yeah, you know, I think the the easiest way to avoid being slapped with the grunge label is to do anything but sound like Tad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, yeah. yeah, so that always made me laugh. But anyway, God bless Tad Doyle. Uh, who knows what he's doing now? <clears throat> but uh, he made some wonderful stuff. And like you said, God's Balls and Salt Lick. I mean, that, that one, too, is uh, one of the great yeah. um, uh, sort of uh, volleys of, of the true grunge era. So moving from Tad to uh, a band that you might actually be surprised uh, was pretty much put on uh, the radar and uh, was got the wind to become popular uh, from Sub Pop. And this is L7. Uh, awesome. Love this band. One of my all-time favorite bands. A fucking amazing band. Uh, and this album on Sub Pop from 1990 is called Smell the Magic, uh, <laughs> which, uh, you know, and this, uh, this band was great because, uh, you know, all, all female band that truly, truly, truly didn't give a fuck. So yeah. uh, let me let's 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 just uh, talk about L7 and about this record. Uh, so we have to begin a discussion of the mighty, mighty L7 by telling you about what they were not. Uh, they were not a grunge band. Uh, Smell the Magic was released by Sub Pop, but this fearsome foursome were children of Los Angeles. Any yeah. relation to Seattle was tangential. Uh, they were not a punk band because they were too metal for that. But they were not a metal band either. If anything, they were lineal descendants of the Stooges, Black Flag, and other untamed, blue-collar, nonconformist dude bands. Uh, let me rephrase that. Dude bands. Not dude bands. Dude bands. Uh, now, uh, they certainly weren't a riot girl band. Uh, no one would ever confuse singer and guitarist Danita Sparks with cutie Kathleen Hanna or an ironic member of Babes in Toyland. Uh, they dressed ugly and scuzzy and they didn't give a damn what you thought. Uh, they were ferociously honest, blunt women, but they were not ladies. Uh, were they feminist? Uh, sure. But when they organized the famous Rock for Choice concerts, Uh, Starting in 1992, uh, the Bills were generally all guys. And I don't think that Gloria Steinem or Joan Baez ever extracted a uh, using a currently being used tampon and threw it at hecklers, which uh, Danita (laughs) Sparks did during the rest of the Reading Festival in 1992. Uh, The video is out there on uh on youtube go check it out it's hilarious smell smell the magic indeed yes yeah, smell the magic indeed uh it's it, it's bold as fuck but it's it's wonderful 
And then they also were not a gimmick band. I mean, look, they were an all-female band uh, that made their way onto MTV uh, when real rock got cool again in 1992, but they could also play. Uh, Dee Plackis, for instance, was one of the best rock drummers of her era or any era, really. Uh, She had the privilege of being produced at one point by Butch Vig. There was a rule in the early 90s. If you wanted your drums to sound really fucking great, you would get produced by Butch Vig. But, well, more than that, if you were a really, really, really good drummer that wanted your drums to sound really, really, really good, Butch Vig was your (laughs) go-to. And, yeah. you know, that's Grohl, Jimmy Chamberlain, and Dee Plackis. So anyway, uh, L7 broke through into the mainstream in 1992 with their undying rock, alt-rock radio staple, uh, the wonderful uh, and colossal and awesome Pretend uh, We're Dead, uh, which is from the 192 album, 1992 album that was produced by Butch Vig called Bricks Are Heavy. But they, effective, they effectively signaled uh, their arrival as one of the most holy hard rock uh, bands of all time uh, two years earlier. And that's Smell the Magic, which is a nine-song, 30-minute powder keg of an album. Uh, This was L7's second uh, record following their self-titled 1988 debut. And this album pumps out anthem after anthem after anthem after anthem. Uh, Loud, rude, intense, rollicking, and raunchy. Uh, let's go through some of the songs. Uh, fast and frightening is both fast. And for a lot of people out there back in 1990, probably very, very, very frightening. Uh, yeah. bashed out at a, over an unrelenting two minutes and 40 seconds. The song is exhilarating and hilarious featuring the most wonderful of couplets, popping wheelies on her motorbike, straight girls wish they were dykes. Uh, I love it. Uh, the bashing out, <laughs> the bashing out never really dies on this record. Uh, there's death wish, uh, which is a hooky headbanger that pays loving tribute to its fucked up self-destructive characters. Uh, there's till the wheels fall off, uh, driven by a chug a lug rhythm that owes as much to surf rocks as it does X, which is another obvious influence on this band. Uh, yeah. there, there is broomstick, which is a slow burning, bizarrely sexy rocker, with one of Sparks' finest growling vocal performances. Uh, there's the gun-toting, mass-murdering fantasia of packing a rod, or packing yeah. a rod, uh, yeah. which may or may not be a dick joke, or may or may not be an anti-rape screed. In any case, it's a really astonishing song. And at the end, there's American Society, which is uh, satirical and hilarious, but also a precursor to the dominant mid-tempo radio readiness and sing-alongs of Pretend We're Dead and Shitlist, which I like better, uh, from uh, Bricks Are Heavy there in 92. Now, uh, Smell the Magic, I think, was L7's best album and is still a fresh, exciting listen to this day. I've been listening to it a lot in the last week in preparation for this episode. Uh, The band continued to release albums and also organized Rock for Choice concerts throughout the 90s, before going on a, an extended hiatus, and then, like a lot of their other contemporaries, uh, reformed in the 2010s as the climate for angry, politically pointed uh, rock grew friendlier once more and the opportunity to realize the value of their legacy, uh, Reed Cha-Ching, uh, presented right. itself. Uh, right. Unlike some of those other bands, though, L7 is actually still pretty good. Uh, check out 2019 Scatter the Rats, which sure follows the rude Riftastic L7 formula, but it does it fabulously. So there you go. 
Sub Pop underwrote the white man grunge's uh, the white man's grunge revolution, but it also gave us the fierce women of L7 their first real break. Go figure. Uh, Artie, what say you? Yeah, I also agree that uh, uh, I agree that Smell the Magic is their best album, and uh, I, I have very little to add. But do you know who does have something to add to this, Chris? Who's that? Robert Criscow. Well, hey, how, <laughs> um, hey, hey, the dean is back. All right. In his 1990 uh, Village Voice review, Criscow absolutely loves L7. He gives all their albums A's and A minuses. Um, this is what he has to say about Smell the Magic. Quote. Generalizing the hostile shove, which is the big single from this album, yes. with the balls to the wall, fast, fast and frightening, dissecting everybody else's suicidal tendencies on Death Wish before joining the fun until the wheels fall off, humping a broomstick as a preamble to pack in a rod, these clitocentric trouble girls are everything the runaways were supposed to be. Afraid of nothing, including the four-syllable F-word, they go for an obsessive, dirty, punk pop metal so aggressive it'll scare damn near every sister in sight. But the bravest will grow stronger. Soon, they'll tell others and start their own bands and conquer the world. Right? Yeah, I, that, 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 that's <laughs> a pretty smart take that uh, uh, L7... Uh, like, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could say that like the Slater Kinney's of the world yeah. uh, owe a debt of gratitude to, sure. to L7. Uh, and But like I said. S- S- Slater Kinney is L7 goes to college. Yeah. Pr- yeah. Pretty much. But 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 L- L7, they just they were just well, the thing about it is that they were serious and they were profound and they were poignant. Right. But they also right. were funny as hell. I mean, yeah, you know, the, and a the sense of humor. Yeah, <laughs> well, the idea. I mean, even the presentation where they all dressed down and they like de- deliberately looked like bums to kind of make yeah. the point of we ain't looking pretty for nobody, motherfucker. You know. Yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, I love that. But, but again, you know, uh, the guitarists I and mean, they all were like ace players. Uh, right. You know, like I said, you know, one of the best drummers of the era, and uh, man. They they just were phenomenal and sub pop uh, set them up for glory. Yeah, totally. so amazing. Yeah. Definitely a band worth checking out. L seven, one of the greatest female rock and roll bands of all time. True enough. And with that, we come to the end of the sub pop vault, which is a great way to end a discussion of the legacy of Soundgarden. Uh, we hope that we have educated you. We hope that you have. We have inspired you to enter the Wayback Machine yourself and go listen to Ultra Mega OK and Super Unknown and uh, Down on the Upside, especially Down on the Upside, which is, you know, like I said, that's their great lost, uh, you know, album. Uh, The one that's, I think, the most underappreciated. Before we go, everyone, just a reminder to uh, check us out and join our curmudgeonly community on Facebook. Uh, There, uh, we uh, talk about all things rock and roll uh, in a way that honors rock and roll and honors you as a rock and roll acolyte. So again, that is facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. It is an invite-only group, but uh, chances are we'll let you in. So on that note, uh, have a great uh, couple of weeks, and we will be back when we start our series, The Fourth Golden Age of Rock. Rock.